I'm really dressed up for this podcast. Yeah, me too. Well, I don't know if I mentioned this. Nice. That's a nice look. I don't know if I mentioned this last time, but the optometrist said that 12 hours on, 12 hours off with the contact lenses. So that's why when I'm not working, my normal gig, that's why I'm wearing the glasses. So I I, I get it. I wish I could wear glasses. I'm not able to. Oh, that'll be a topic for another podcast, I suppose. (laughs) But I knew that. I knew that. You know, it's funny with the NFL draft happening right now, Nick Casario, the general manager of the Houston Texans, had talked about boards, draft boards. And it was very, I don't want to say interesting, because I think that that's a word that's perhaps used too much. I don't know how to describe it, Jeremy, but he said most of the time when people look at draft boards, they look top to bottom vertically. And he said with the Houston Texans, And his experience, instead of going top to bottom vertically, look horizontally. And the way it was described is that the Texans perhaps group players almost like in pods. So they think of where realistically players might be chosen, and they have them in groups. Is it similar or was it similar in your experiences in draft rooms in baseball that you guys would group players together. And I didn't even get the sense that it was even positions, that it was not just positions, but it was actual just groups of players in terms of overall talent level, overall strength. Is that how it worked with you guys in the, in the various draft rooms you've been in? Well, he's, he's going to tell you that it's overall strength and overall talent level. What he's really saying, which is going to make him sound like he doesn't know what he's doing, which help me understand if he does, right? Um, no, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, and I may not have all the details um, right like that. So before you say, well, you know, about Nick Casario, I'm paraphrasing going off memory. I'm, I'm, I'm going right. mean, to pull it, up the quote while you're, while you're um, right. well, discussing. The, the philosophy, I'll, how about this? Let me go into baseball, and then we'll tie it back to football. In baseball, um, there's, there's four or five different factors to deal with. The first factor you're going to deal with is how you as an organization feel about the player, period. doesn't matter what the industry thinks or what a writer thinks or what ownership, who has, how you as an organization think, feel as a player. You're going to lie, put those guys into groups or roles, right? Rule seven, rule eight, well, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, all the way down the line. That's, that's the same as a group. For us, that's the same as a pod. Put it in whatever you want to do. So people call it group two. So people will go even further and go group one, group two, group three, and have a broader focus. But that's still about what the organization thinks. It's not about if you're the Houston Astros, which will, ironic, I picked them with some of the scout conversations. But if you're the Houston Astros, you're not caring about what the Minnesota Twins think necessarily in your eval of the player. Right now, is there is there a part of a a process as to who's going to take the player where or where do you have to select them or how much the player wants? Yeah, but usually you still stick to your guns on that. Right. Where it gets a little bit hairy and only if if in creativity is if you like a player and, you know, you really like this guy, but you're not as high on him as some of these other guys. Man, you really want to get them, but you like somebody else better. So you might take player B over player A just like the Angels did with Randall Gritzik and Mike Trout to make sure you get them both. Now, that was back-to-back picks, but you could do it that way. Um, 
But you, what, what Casario, the way you described it is a little bit different. So you have the quote just to be sure, because I want to hear what the quote was. All right, so I do have it right here. Okay. There is no, there is no perfect formula. I think what you have to do is you evaluate the players. You assign a grade, and what we are doing now is it's not as much as the vertical stacking as it is horizontal. You're kind of looking at equivalent valued players and their position relative to where you may have to acquire them. Part of our process is we are not afraid to eliminate some players, which is sidebar something that we'll talk about later. It doesn't mean that we don't like them, but maybe it's where they are expected to be picked relative to the greater value we, ha we have on them. Let's not spend too much time on them. I would say there is roughly 80 to 100 players that we would actually draft. That doesn't mean that we are going to draft all of them in the first round, but at some point, I would say that is about the number. Other teams could be different, but what we have to do is look at our team, look at the position of our board, look horizontally and just make an assessment about if we pick here realistically, is this player a possibility? If he's not a factor, let's move on. Let's go to the next slide. This seems like more of a sweet spot where you might be able to acquire that player. I would say this draft, generally speaking, a little bit more of a crapshoot. You talk to different people, top player at his position. There's six players. You'll get six different answers. This is how we view the player. Uh, what we look we look at some of the mock drafts for more general positioning, not well, this player is projected to go 15th overall. Well, we're picking 13th. Is he going there? Not necessarily. You're trying to get a general vicinity or range. This group of players is ranked this and above. More than likely, are they going to fall here? The next group of players, how are we positioned? Is it even a possibility? Those are the kinds of discussions and dialogues we have internally. The reality is you don't know until you get to start picking. 32 players are going to get picked on Thursday night, blah, blah, blah. So um, there's a lot to unpack there in that quote. Um, I think the majority of it is, is, can be summed up pretty simply, though, and that is how you just ended reading the quote, and that is blah, 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 okay? There isn't a whole lot that was said of substance. As a matter of fact, I would look at Nick Casario like, you know, I, I don't, I don't know what he was. This side of the mouth went that way. This side of the mouth went that way, and somewhere in the middle, there was a whole lot of blah blah blah. And what I got for that is, what I got for that is this: it, my my initial, um, my initial thought after you uh, paraphrased before you read the quote was that he would. They're drafting based on what the industry thinks which is a very, very easy and loose way to say, we have no idea what we're doing, okay? We have no idea what we're thinking. We don't know what, we don't know what's going on. We're going to draft based on the mock drafts because if the mock drafts say that this guy should go 17th and we take some guy, this guy at 24 because we like the guy better than 17, we're still in the ballpark. We'll get him. Ownership's happy. We have these reasons, blah, blah, blah reasons why we like this guy better. You know, it... it How's Nick Casario done as a GM? Like, honestly, isn't it? Was there some guy there named Jack Easterbunny? I mean, Easterby. Wasn't there some guy there who was like really despised? How was Nick Casario done as a GM? Well, Jack Easterby is still there. He has moved in a little bit of a different role or back to his original role of director of football operations. He was the interim general manager. How is Nick Casario done? I think it's up for debate. I think you would argue most people would say he's still early in the process. This is just his second draft. 
His first one had a number of hits. Four early on, at least the early returns. Davis Mills as a third-round quarterback, statistically was one of the best rookie quarterbacks in the NFL. A late-round pick, Roy Lopez, was very productive, started. You don't get that very often in the NFL draft. Um, I was just surprised he mentioned that they actually look at the mock drafts. How many mock drafts did you look at? And granted, I know it's a different animal because you've got um, this mixture of high school versus college and junior college. But, I mean, how many mock drafts would you look at before you guys went into your, your draft room? With any a, kind of credit. I have a, with I have a feeling it's going to be maybe. Yeah, I, I mean, none. I mean, you know, you look at one the day of just to see what, what people are saying, but it doesn't affect your board. It doesn't affect what's going on. And what Easterby, or, I'm sorry, Casario is saying is that that actually affects their board. Now, I will qualify that by saying baseball and football are entirely different. There is no minor league, uh, uh, you know, assistance in football so you know drafting for need at the nfl along with best player is probably a good idea in some ways they can trade picks they move stuff around you know during the draft there's a little there's some different rules there um and they have guys that take the field and there is no junior texans there's no triple a cowboy it's not that well space cowboys i guess there's triple a but there is no there is no um you know triple a football team you know that's, that's not how it works so they have a different window and the philosophy has to be different based on that and i will grant him that but when it comes to horizontal, when you use words like crapshoot, looking at mock drafts, you know, talking about, um, you know, where we might like this player or value this player versus gets what he wants. Do we pass him? There's only 80 to 100 players we might draft. But we're not sure what that's going to look. You're telling me you don't know anything. How about just say, look, we have our philosophy. And instead of going the best player available, we draft for need. We try to monitor industry consensus to get a feel. We might have to take a player. And if he doesn't fit for us, we move on. That at least is believable. Not blah, 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 blah. Deshaun Watson, Jack Easterby. I think he meant, I think he mentioned it, it to go back. He said general positioning of a player, but I guess that really shouldn't matter. Right? Like if you have a conviction about a guy and if, Those he's, guys if he grades listen. out to be a third or second round, if he's like 30th on your board, then, you know, he's probably, a guy that is a late first round, early second round pick. What do you, it's always has to ask, what do you really think about a player? Not what does Mel Kuyper, no disrespect to think about a player, right? And if you're, if you're in the baseball realm or football realm or, bat, or if you're a scout, what are your tools for evaluation? Why do you like a player? Or why do you not? That's just the basic foundation of scouting and player evaluation. Doesn't matter if it's chess checkers, tiddlywinks, hopscotch, jumps, jump rope, baseball, soccer, basketball, hockey, double-A badminton, it doesn't matter. Like, what's your evaluation of a player? And what are the tools you're doing? And none of the people who don't have a dog in the fight or making a selection, their opinion doesn't matter. Now, there is a credibility line, right? And I, and I will be plead ignorance on football, and I will say there's only two people I know um, who have who I pay attention to on the football side, one of which, of course, is Mel Kuyper. Everybody's seen him before. You can't miss Mel Kuyper. And the other one is Steve Palazzolo. And the reason why Steve Palazzolo is because he's a former teammate and a former opponent, and so I always pay attention to what he has to say out of respect for him. But when it comes down to what the, um, the, the, the baseball writers think, and like, okay, Jonathan Mayo, as just an example to put it back in my room, Jonathan Mayo and Jim Callis, just put out their mock draft, right? 
Um, that's it. That, that's, that's what I got. I got nothing. It was so bad that my eyes started to bleed from reading it. It was terrible. Okay. And if I'm drafting the way those guys think, if I'm a club, I should, I should probably turn in my card. I should be like, you know what? Yeah, I don't deserve this. Those guys are, there's feel and then there's that, right? There's feel, there's no feel, and there's that. And well, so I'm going to stand I'm up. Not for, to... I'm going to stand up for my media brethren and say, listen, a lot of times when you're doing your mock drafts, you're doing it at least as from their viewpoint is what they're hearing from teams. So not those two. Okay. Not those two. And, and I, I see, I disagree. But there's a couple out there that have a feel for what teams will say. Some people talk to Mayos, people talk to Callus, but the way they put that stuff together, Jason, it is never right. It is never, it's not even, it doesn't resemble being right. And so, you know, my point is this, they can say whatever they're saying, they can talk to whatever they're talking, they can rank guys out however they want. Um, but that's, that's the validity of it. It's never correct. It's, you know, it's, these are just names and fodder. If Casario is actually drafting based on some kind of media mock draft influence, I got concerns. That said, that's his route. I didn't hire him. Cal McNair hired him, and that's up to them to figure it out. Speaking of draft picks, it was very interesting to see a new article from Baseball America talking about how the Astros for years had been shedding scouts, and now they are accumulating them in greater numbers than any team in professional baseball, in Major League Baseball. And I thought it was particularly interesting. Two things. I thought, one, Chris Gross mentioning that he had to go to James Click and say, listen, we're really sp spread thin. We need some help here. And two was the story of a certain Astros draft pick who was selected in the draft. I have been told this story previously, and you and I had talked about this, that the industry basically looked at, the, at this kid as undraftable, and the Astros selected him, and scouts from other teams were texting guys from the Astros saying, oh my God, do you, do you guys know what you just did? And it was just very interesting to see it in print. Um, you know, so look, James Click, came over here um and by the way this is year three of a three-year deal for james but when james click came over here he said we're, we need scouts i need personnel we need people so you know i'm sure i'm glad to hear chris gross feel felt the same way but that was something that james already knew right I, maybe chris helped him with you know get it across to crane because ultimately crane's money but that's something he already knew um yeah the player in question is a kid from florida who most people wouldn't touch with you know, ever. And they just, that's why the story comes up. But the Astros having followed the Jeff Luno route to success of scouting, which, well, it hasn't worked out real well in the amateur world. Um, you know, decided to fire everybody they could and do it all from numbers and just click wasn't, didn't have the budget or the ability to go hire people through the last draft. Um, that, that is honestly where I will stick up for Chris Gross and, and any Astro scout that's still there, um, they were spread ridiculously thin. They were tasked with the impossible because the people that were above them didn't care what they thought. It's almost like the scouts that were out there, and I don't mean James Click when I say that. I'm talking to people before that front office, right? Um, it's almost like the scouts that were out there were hung out to dry. And a lot of the stuff 
And I'm so glad because, man, I, you know, I didn't know what I was going to say about this. But you know how this goes. We start rolling. And man, I'm so glad you're able to do this and say this stuff to me um, and set it up like this, like literally on a tee, like it's volleyball. And here, and here we go. OK. And um, the Astro scouting department has been crucified for the last several years by, by me, by yours truly, as well as some other people. But the reality is just that. I'm not crucifying the guys out there in the grind. I'm talking about the Eliases and the Lunos of the world that took away the scouting, which got in this place in the first, got here to the first place, right? It's, it's not the area guys and the cross checkers. There was one guy, I mean, one time had an area from like Georgia to Maine. Like, how are you going to cover that? It's impossible to cover that. And so, of course, you're going to make mistakes. And of course, you're going to get misses because you get a 30 second look at a guy and got to get in the next plane, you know? And that, and that is exactly what the Astros had. So, Every Astro scout that is still with that organization that was not just hired from before, you have finally getting from me, whether you care or not, you are getting your pass, all right? Because your job was taken away from you. And it was interesting to see that Chris Gross and James Click have now decided to go ahead and refill that because it was sorely needed. And hopefully by hiring veteran guys, which they are, they're hiring evaluators, right? They're not just hiring, you know, kids fresh out of Wharton Business School sitting there telling you that the 75 exit velocity on the hypotenuse of the 16 degree angle with the acceleration rotational sphere take this guy second they're not doing that right they're actually getting guys to evaluate and putting people in positions where they can be successful as a unit I really hope it works because that's how baseball is supposed to work and good for them for pivoting back once they got rid of Luno and Elias and for all the Astro scouts that are there now and all the guys that just that are just getting back in, I'm pulling for you. It really is a new era if you get a chance to start and make a difference. Trevor Bauer has been suspended two, basically two seasons. He says he will appeal and categorically denies. I can get the exact quote from Trevor Bauer for violating the league's domestic violence and sexual assault policy in the strongest possible terms. I deny committing any violation of that policy. I'm appealing this action and expect to prevail as we have throughout this process. My representatives and I respect the confidentiality of the proceedings. Well, I'm certain that the players, the PA knew what was going, what was going down. You know, I, I'm certain that's the case. I mean, obviously he's not going to be um, suspended the way that he was unless it's well within their rights to do so. It's got to be an agreed upon policy in any collective bargaining agreement. And certainly the one they just had means everything that just is in there is fresh and everybody's up to date on it, right? Um, what it tells me is that the union had no problem whatsoever with the rule and that MLB went ahead and did what they felt like they had to do. It is interesting to me to see that, the you know, Bauer's case was dismissed, right? Um, and, and look, love him or, or hate him. And there is a lot of people far more people on the ladder than there are in the front. Um, but he's innocent so far, right? He's innocent of a crime. To see an MLB turn around and suspend him after being innocent of a crime the way that he did, the longest suspension, I believe, of all time, when you've got actual domestic abusers, and I'm not, believe me, I am not trying to separate what he may have done or his own personal habits from being acceptable, but if they're his own personal habits and they're not against the law, you know what that makes them? None of our business, okay? And so when it comes to that part of it, um, you have people like Roberto Asuna and other people in the game who have made some major, major, major convicted type mistakes that have had far less suspensions. It's going to be interesting to see where this really goes. If I was Bauer, 
I don't know that I would appeal. I probably would have expected this. They kept punting it and punting it and punting it and punting it, agreeing to admin leave, agreeing to admin leave. And the next thing you know, now there's no more admin leave. Now he's gone for two years. And I promise you the PA was well-versed in that. And that was part of the conversation. That's what they decided. It doesn't really matter if Bauer was suspended for two years, three years, seven years, six months. It doesn't matter. He's done. No one's going to sign him. No one wants to be part of this. When a different age, um, we look at stuff like Jada Pinkett Smith and Will Smith, what happened at the Oscars. You're looking at uh, Pat Mahomes and, and his wife and some of the things that have been captured there, right? I mean, you're looking at uh, the whole Johnny Depp and Amber Heard thing. I mean, you start looking at the toxicity of people's behavior and what it means. Bauer was already a distraction in the clubhouse. He was already somebody who was who was the players didn't enjoy playing around. All this really did was take the Dodgers off the hook for what, 70 million? That's all this really did. Dodgers are off the hook for 70 million and Bauer's free to play again. It's not a lifetime, man. In 2024, somebody will sign him, but he's missed 21 missed 22, missed 23, and part of 24 in prime years, they took away his prime earning earning opportunity. They took away any leverage that he's going to have. They took him completely out of game shape unless he goes and plays an independent ball or over in Asia, which would be great to see if that actually happens, right? Who knows? And um, they put him in a situation where his career is probably over. And so if you're looking at, at that side of it from an athletic sta uh, standpoint, as well as a personality standpoint, the suspension is just more of a formality. He's done. From what I recall, an independent league like the Atlantic League, they abided by Major League Baseball suspensions, from what I recall, uh, during my days covering the Atlantic League. So in, I don't think independent ball in this country is, unless it's maybe the Pecos League or something, I, I, a league that's affiliated with Major League Baseball, like the Atlantic League, they are going to abide by and uphold that suspension. It's interesting. Man, I keep using that word. Interesting. Yeah. That's well, a lot yeah. of stuff going on. <laughs> real quickly, really, real quickly, Manfred issued, um, it, this is the longest an MLB player has been suspended under the policy without being charged um, is a full season. And I didn't realize this, but Major League Baseball has previously suspended 14 players over the past six years since the policy has been active and it has ranged from 15 games to 162. I had, I, I guess it never occurred to me that there's been that many players under this policy. Did you realize that? No, I, I, you know, this game has a very short memory when it comes to players when you're no longer part of it. I mean, it doesn't, uh, we have a, an opera, we have a, a, a game that some of the best players ever to play are hardly discussed anymore. Right. And that's just part of what it is. There's always something going. There's always things moving. And in a, in a day and age where the fan demographic for Major League Baseball um, is getting older rather than younger, right? I mean, you know, the people that have grew up with it are still watching it. And a lot of the younger kids aren't. They think that, you know, playing in a tournament or playing in high school baseball or college baseball is where they want to go. They aren't even considered big leagues anymore. When the, when the affordability of it has changed and the people running the game has changed, um, yeah, it's really easy to forget some of the things that are going on, you know, and as the game polices itself. And that's not something I, I knew or understood. Um, it actually surprises me to hear that, um, that many, that many players, because, you know, we like to think our game is a little bit cleaner than that, but in reality is it's not. So, um, but Bauer deserves, whether he deserves the suspension or not is none of, um, my judgment and my formal opinion stuff like encouraging players to have antics on the field and giving them 2,500 bucks is, 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 is a problem. Stuff like 
um, you know, the sword is a problem. Stuff like enabling people, um, like, you know, his, the cult of personality, we'll call it for argument's sake, around him. You know, whether it, that stuff is not, is not helping baseball. And this is more of a, not just an indictment of Trevor Bauer. This is an indictment of the culture he and, frankly, Kyle Bodie have started. This is a suspension on him. This, this, this driveline culture started with, with, with Bodie and, and Bauer. That's where it started, right? Really, that's the first guy from it. And the only guy that's truly had a ton of success from doing it. So um, to me, this is an indictment of who Trevor Bauer is, who's around him and the people. And it's a way to take the light off him because he ain't playing again for three years. 21's over, 22's here, 23 ain't happening. And we might see you in 24. And that's at the earliest opportunity. MLB said, we're tired of you. We're tired of the people around you. You're out. Any uh, Bodie defenders hit you up on social media since our last podcast? No, but I have a pretty cool video somebody made of him singing R-E-S-B-C-T, which is mm -hmm. kind of funny. Okay. You know, I, it's it's not he's we spent way too much time on him last time. We were 14 minutes on it, man. That I mean, so much of what this guy has done to the game for those of us that bleed it, um, it whether we're in it or not. I, you know, I bleed this game in my veins. It is I, it bit me when I was five years old and I was lucky enough to be good enough at it to experience it for a while. Um, and, I, and ever since I put the, the, the bat and the ball down and crossed the other side, I feel like I've done all right. All right. But I enjoy it in a way that is lifeblood. It's you breathe it, you wake up to it, you think about it, you train. There isn't a day that goes by anybody who's ever experienced it at that type of competitive level doesn't think about it. No matter what they ever tell you, you just make different, you make a piece with a different part of your life. But, you know, the images and the things that you go through and the guys you play with and the people you're around and the battles you fight together. All that stuff stays with you. And Kyle Bodie has disrespected everything in every day or second or ounce of competing that it's taken to earn that part of your life. Him and his people have come in and bastardized that. So no one's going to defend it because there's nothing to say. That's that's just it's, it's indisputable that that's what he's done. You know, so, you know, look, this is Bauer's going to have to wear this one. Bodie's going to have to wear it with him. Eric Sims going to have to wear it with him. That King of Juco who steals the rocks catchphrases all the time. You know, all that's, I mean, if I was a rock, I'd be sitting like, look, man, get your own, get your own, you know, it's mine. You know, just, I, I invented it. I brought it out there. Why are you stealing it? You know, that's what I would say, but that's what those guys do. There's nothing original about them. They just sit there, crack Red Bulls and ah, I'm going to hit tanks. Oh, I'm going to throw hard. Here's my sword. Look, that's what they do. It's, it's old. It's tired. Move on. All right, I'm going to come up with a new game for next time regarding your old scouting report. So we'll do that next All time. Right. You right. said let's do 20-something uh, minutes and who knows how long this one went. So uh, for Jeremy, I'm Jason. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to everybody next time.